Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Petrica Verdes. And Petrica is the translator for a Romanian mystic, I guess we could say, named Ilia Choara. And um, in the past week, I've had the pleasure of reading portions of four of his books, The Silence of the Mind, I Am Boundlessness, The Wondrous Journey, and Life is Eternal new Newness. And if I had had the luxury of preparing for this interview as thoroughly as I would have liked, I read, I would have read all four books cover to cover because they're very profound and, and very beautiful, and I think they're going to become better and better known in the um, collection of spiritual uh, literature uh, around the world. They'll they'll become classics like Yogananda's book or Nisargadatta's book because they're just so clear in their expression, not only of uh, the absolute level of life, which Chihuahua obviously was experiencing with crystal clarity, but of the whole relative span of life as well, which he explored experientially and understood intellectually from the astral to the gross to the causal and whatever levels there may be in between. Um, so, And I think a, a great deal of the credit for the clarity of these books um, belongs to Petrica, who did a, a beautiful job translating them. You, you must yourself have a f quite a deep and clear level of experience to have been able to do justice to the material, so congratulations on that. <laughs> I have a few things to say about the, the translation. Sure. It's one of the easiest things I've ever done in my life. Hmm. I, I didn't have to to look for a certain word, I didn't have to think, oh, how should I say this, how should I say that? It just happened spontaneously. Mm. And, um, I, d I didn't set out to, to translate a book. I was just reading one of, I was, I was living in England, and um, by, by chance I had one of his books with me. So I was reading, reading from this book uh, to a friend, and I thought, uh, wow, this sound, sounds really good in English. So I, I translated one poem, and then what happened next was um, I felt this energy around me as I was reading the book. And um, I was working at the time, so I, I, was, uh, I was waking up at 7 in the morning, and uh, at 7 I was going to work. So um, what happened next was at 5 o'clock, I started waking up at 5 o'clock. Spontaneously, it's like like someone was pulling me by the collar and saying, uh, "Translate." <laughs> it, it was like this: five o'clock, waking up, piece of paper, and um, so I just took a poem, and uh, I don't know, the words just came. I didn't have to choose them. That's why, even even now, when I read the books, I read I read the books as if I haven't done the translation as if someone else did it I don't I don't feel um, I can take credit for the translation yeah <laughs> but uh, um, that's what I mean to say um, the words just came and sometimes I, I couldn't write uh, couldn't be fast enough to write them mm. then uh, afterwards I did the corrections which uh, <clears throat> Because uh, English is not my native language, so I'm insecure about some things. But 95% uh, it, it stayed as, as it 
was. Maybe I would correct some grammar errors or something. Hmm. So <clears throat> it's been it's been a real pleasure for me and, and like um, spiritual growth. Yeah, so I've been living with with uh, his energy. I met him when he was alive. I met him once, mm -hmm. but uh, for for a couple of years I was living with him in my space when I was translating all all the books and um, that everything came even the the order because they're compilations. Eliachar wrote uh, twelve hundred poems or even more. He has about sixteen books and. Um, so the poems are followed by um, a prose version. Commentary. A commentary, but mm -hmm. um, it's not exactly a commentary because uh, it's exactly the same thing explained a bit more in depth in yeah. prose. But um, in, um, in the original language, the, the verses are in rhythm and rhyme. So everything he wrote about twelve hundred of them, and everything is almost, almost perfect rhythm like ta 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 at the rhyme. So he has about twelve twelve hundred of them, and what he does is he he keeps repeating more or less the same thing. So he, he's he's very repetitive, but there's um, there's a method in it. There's a reason for it, because in, in one of his writings he he talks about Krishnamurti and he says, with uh, Jesus and Buddha, the the followers of Jesus and Buddha, they didn't have anything written down by by Jesus and Buddha. Everything was secondhand uh, knowledge. The disciples wrote the New Testament. And uh, with Krishnamurti, he said um, everything's written down. But uh, what what he noticed with the disciples of Krishnamurti is that they they gather, they have meetings, and they discuss what Krishnamurti said. So uh, Elichara's method is to not give any any nourishment to the mind, and the, the poems are an experience. They, they don't explain. But they, they try to take you beyond, beyond the mind. Mm -hmm. So if, if the reader reads them as a device for meditation, this helps the reader go beyond the mind. And it's, it's uh, repetitive on purpose, as I said. Um, and many great teachers use repetition because it's like a mantra. It sort of takes you to subtler yeah. and subtler levels with each repetition. But it's it's more like he he just sat down, wrote a poem, wrote maybe the prose version, and then he forgot about it. The next the next day he sat down, he wrote another one, and he didn't remember the last one. Yeah. The the whole point of the twelve hundred poems is, uh, it's like a shredder for the mind. So it's like it's like it makes mince meat. If you if you are a, a true seeker and you you use these this device for meditation, perhaps if if you read them and you don't meditate on these poems, then you might find them boring or you might find them weird or strange. It, they're not always logical. 
but uh, if someone has the patience to actually read them and and um, experience them, it's like a, a shredder for, for the mind. Yeah. Well, I found them very clear, and uh, I, I, I felt as I was reading them, and I didn't even have time to read the, the prose version very much. I just read the poems. And usually I don't like to read poems because, I don't know, my mind wanders off. I don't follow them very well, but I found it was very easy to just settle in and read these and have each sort of par each little paragraph. Um, I think the difference between uh, ordinary poems and these poems, uh, I would call them objective poetry. Mm. Uh, something that, um, as I said, takes you into a, uh, into a space also, of meditation. Right, but it's it's something objective. It's, it's not a subjective world. Like um, it takes you into the into reality. There, he he calls them windows to infinity. Yeah. So each poem is a window to infinity, and uh, whoever, whichever person reads them, it's the same. They will get the same experience. It's not a poet uh, describing a subjective. War, his subjective world. Right, he's offering them as a technique for others to yeah. uh, to come into the same infinity that he had. I've heard people that he saying, was so familiar with. I've heard people saying that they're not poetic enough. So <laughs> it's not. Uh, it, I try to avoid the word poetry because it's not what you you normally understand by poetry. Yeah, they're verses and but they're very they're very clear prose okay. verses really. Like sutras. Yeah, yeah. Like like reading the Gita or something. They could call that poetry, but it's really a narrative verse and it's very clear what you're reading. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit more about yourself before we uh talk more about Ilya. Uh how did you I mean, you have a, a spiritual background. You you grew up in Romania, I guess, but you've been a seeker or a spiritual aspirant for a couple of decades. Yeah. Um, before before I talk about myself, I have to to say um, I have to clear something up. Um, it's weird to talk about myself because um, it's like talking about someone someone else or about, like talking about a past life. Mm -hmm. It's irrelevant. But it's being here with you, talking to you right now, it's it's like I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about if I talk about my it's it's something very distant like as if some it happens to some someone else so I will give some details if just just in relations to in relation to literature maybe I'll let you know how I met him or yeah whatever. just very brief so just, I, just so people get a sense of you know who you are in a relative sense okay um, well, I, I discovered meditation when I was 21 mm -hmm. um, through some Osho books. So, um, and I was a student at the time, and I was doing the master's degree, and I have I had a lot of uh, spare time on my hands. So, uh, for two years, two three years, I was there meditating from morning till evening. I was. I was doing all kinds of meditations, and then uh, in 2002 I met Chara and then in 2003 I started traveling, and um, 
I, I worked and lived in various uh, OSHA centers, some, some in Italy, some in Germany. There's um, another OSHA center in, um, in the UK called Croydon Hall, one in Germany, Manusha. So I, I, in the past about 10 years, I, I, I either meditated in the world or for a few months I, I walk the walk, so to so speak. I, I lived in these places where um, it's more about the energy in the right. place and med it's not about someone explaining things to you. It's more like uh, you meditate and then when your perceptions is enhanced, then you understand everything. Mm -hmm. like, um, there's no teacher or... So, you know, uh, in the past, I don't know, 13 years I've, I've been um, meditating on my own from the moment I open my eyes in the morning to the moment I close my eyes in the evening. Um, awareness so I, I've, I've been doing this for for many years is it an actual practice you have to do or is that just descriptive of your experience that pure awareness is there throughout the day um, in the beginning I've, I've done a lot of practices and I was infatuated with a lot of mm -hmm. practices and uh, there came a point where the practice dropped dropped off by itself when the practice is exhausted, then so then I started practicing what um, Ilya is saying, I'm just witnessing, witnessing my thoughts, or, or just watching. I think the poems, the, the turn, turning point for me was when I started translating the books. That was in two, 2006. That's when I started practice. Until then, I was doing a lot. Of, I was doing a lot of. Um, Techniques and uh, all, I've tried everything, <laughs> but um, it's more—it's more of um, something that <clears throat> you're constantly aware of. Like whatever your, your meditation practice is, uh, it's not something you do for an hour or two hours a day. Because if if you do a meditation for an hour a day, then for 23 hours a day you don't do meditation. So um, everything you've you've gained in that hour it just goes down the drain. <laughs> so, so in other words, so I could I could debate so that, it's, but it's it, more it, like it, a, an inner thing. I mean, I, I I was traveling. I met different schools and different people in my travels, and I've never traveled for the sake of traveling. I was always trying to find a new place where I could learn but uh, ultimately it's an individual thing it's it's your responsibility to meditate um, each person has maybe they have a technique or maybe no technique or just witnessing but it's it's about uh, being aware 24 hours a day not just for a few hours just practicing something for a few hours or going to a workshop and then coming home mm -hmm. uh, regardless if um, Something comes to my mind. Um, 
I used to say, regardless of all the places I've been and places I've traveled, I feel as if I haven't I haven't gone anywhere. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's an inner thing, and uh, yeah, it's, it's something you do alone. Sort of Even if you're with other people, it's in your aloneness you. Kind of reminds me of the Beatles saying that there's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. <laughs> um, now, so let's good. So we got a sense then of, of your orientation. Now let's let's switch it to talking about Ilya a little bit. Um, he lived a, a rather dramatic life. Um, he was pursued and persecuted by the communist regime in Romania. And uh, the first, and he ended up hiding in an attic for several years that was so small he couldn't even sit up. He, he was lying horizontally. Oh, sh shall I tell you the story? Yeah, yeah, I do. So he was just um, an ordinary guy. He had a wife, and he never thought about meditation. Mm -hmm. And I read in one of his books. I read he was a police. He was working in the poli police. He was a policeman. Okay. And uh, in 1946, when the communists invaded Romania, uh, everyone who opposed the regime was arrested. And uh, all the intellectuals, um, writers, anyone who, who even could oppose the regime, uh, they were sent to prison. Sort, kind of like Cambodia, but a bit less... Uh, Extreme. <laughs> so uh, Ilya was one of them, and he was. Um, the police was was ser were searching for him, and um, so he, he hid in in, uh, in his parents' house, and they had an attic where he could uh, he could he couldn't stand up. He had to lie down. It was a very small um, small place, and. Uh, he just had to lie down day and night, and uh, nothing to do. He was just thinking, and um, one full moon night, um, he had a surprise. He had never meditated in his life, but um, one full moon night, he was uh, in the attic, and suddenly he discovered that he was in front of the house. Had left his body and uh, he found himself. He could float anywhere. And then he started um, speaking to dead people. He met, uh, and then he started to explore that world. And um, and there's a story where he he goes into the next room where his mother and father are. He was just the first first time he discovered this. So he goes into the next room, and uh, he sees what they're doing. And then when his mother comes up, he tells he tells her what what she's been doing, what she has been doing, and then they're surprised. Well, wow. so uh, for two and a half years, he, he stayed in the attic, and he explored this astral journey. Or how should I call it? Could he never come out at all? I mean, how did he go to the bathroom? He, he did come out. Yeah. Sometimes, but mostly had to stay there because the police could come any time or something. No, I, I, from what he says, he he did 
come down to eat and stuff like that, but uh -huh. he had to be ready to go up. And right. Not, he couldn't sleep. But he, yeah, he did come down occasionally. Mm -hmm. So for two and a half years, he was basically doing a lot of astral traveling. Was, yeah. yeah. He was playing with it. And then... Um, and I just should add that the account of his astral traveling is quite fascinating. I mean, he really became proficient at exploring all the different realms and worlds and meeting all these different beings and, you know, get, got familiar with higher beings and lower beings and lost beings and trapped beings and all kinds of stuff. Uh, is he, he really sort of uh, acquired a, a thorough knowledge of that dimension. Yes, but uh, he also says that... Um even though he was uh, he was exploring that dimension, he had uh, remained um, an ordinary man. Oh yeah. He he didn't grow necessarily grow spiritually mm -hmm. uh, because he was doing astral journey. Right, but it was that's, a it was a phase. He describes he himself, and and he he also says later on when um, in later on in the story when when he was. Um, giving uh, people messages from the deceased. He says that my, my ego had, had become quite big. Instead, uh -huh. of, uh, instead of growing in, in uh, humbleness and in awareness, he, was, he developed a, a very subtle ego because he was special. He could astral. So he, he, uh, in his write, later writings, he doesn't give... Um, much meditation value to the fact of astral journeying. He described himself as, I was astro I was journeying astrally, but I was just an, an ordinary. Uh, my mentality had not changed. That's right. But he, on, on the other hand, he does but, uh, he, his, he does cover his quite realization a few. is that there is no death. That right. was his message mm -hmm. um, to people who, who he talked to during that period. There is no death. There, uh, there's the astral wor world where people, so the, the physical body dies, and um, and uh, people continue to live in the astral wor world, mm -hmm. and some people continue to take their mentality and live in the astral world the way they were living um, in the normal world. For instance, he describes. Um, a drunkard who dies and goes into the astral world because he doesn't have a body he will want to, re to experience drinking again so he will follow a drunkard and feed off his emotions when he drinks mm. and or someone who's uh, into sex he will follow someone and that's why some people um, who commit suicide sometimes they hear they hear voices before they commit suicide who tell them do it, do it, do it. There's there's all kinds of uh, lower entities or higher entities, and it's it's a, a world within the physical world, mm -hmm. which cannot be measured with physical instruments because it's more subtle than the physical world. Right. But he describes this world in... There is one, one of his books is, is dedicated exclusively to his travels in the astral world. Mm -hmm. But because the, 
the people he meets, it's it's too, um, in a way, it's too restricted to the Romanian mentality. I didn't translate it yet, uh-huh. that one, because it's not something universal. It's very, uh, very specific to the Romanian, the, the people he talks to, the people he meets, the conversations he has with these, with these people. Uh, it's very local, so I, I didn't translate that because it, I didn't think that it would, and also a publisher needed to be interested in yeah. something like that. But. One little point that I found interesting in that phase of the story was uh, he mentioned he met a man on the other in that realm who had been cremated, and he yeah. and he commented that uh, if cremation is is done too abruptly, it can produce tremendous suffering because the ties between the physical, etheric, and astral bodies are he, maintained he after death. He was referring to the the ovens, right? When people are cremating in ovens with temperature of thousand degrees which they generally are um, in in the Indian tradition it's it's customary to of course they've been cremating people for thousands of years but it's customary to wait a certain period of time before you do it so that those ties can be severed and to, to yeah, do certain I think, I think that's an intelligent thing to do yeah and they also even do certain ceremonies beforehand and everything which helps this the mm-hmm. severing and take place yeah. before the cremation but obviously this is a very tangential point, but I, I think if we were to step back and, and kind of summarize the significance of this phase of his life, you know, I would say that uh, you know, nothing happens by accident, and obviously he went through these experiences for a reason and learned certain things from them and then moved on you know, after learning those things and realizing that this was by no means any sort of ultimate uh, you know, solution to, to the mysteries of life. He, he was if I can say this, he was grateful to to what what happened. Yeah. When, when I first read his story, I thought, "Wow, uh, this man lived in very diverse circumstances. Mm-hmm. Communism. There was there were no spiritual books, nothing." And I thought, and then he went he went to prison for six years. He was caught, and then he was sent to prison in um, very dire circumstances, like hard labor, hard labor. He he tells a story where he was um, because there's a there's a channel the Danube channel uh, where the Danube um, goes goes into the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. So this Danube channel was built uh, by by using the the prisoners' work. Ah. So he he tells these accounts where he had the partner he had to work with and he had to dig in in to rock. Mm-hmm. He had to dig. Uh, holes into rock, and if they didn't dig a certain amount, then the rations would be um, cut. Cut. Mm. And um, he says that at some point he he, he weighed forty two kilograms, mm. which is like I, that's about a hundred pounds, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. During his imprisonment, so for mm. six years he was in jail. Or or there uh, there is another account of him in jail. There was a cell full of prisoners, like hundreds of prisoners. And there were so many prisoners that they could not sleep. They could not all sleep. They had to, to, to lie on one side and sleep for a few, a few hours. And then a prisoner would, would give a signal and then they would, they would turn to the other side because they wouldn't fit in the cell. Mm. So it's uh, hair-raising experiences. But w- what I want to say is he was 
grateful. He was grateful to the, the episode with the attic, but he was also grateful for the episode with the six years um, in prison. Because um, from his point of view, he, after that episode, when he returned to, to daily life, so he, he, he then uh, was released and then went, he went to Bucharest. After that, he, the only thing he was thinking about was liberation. So in a way, he considered that, that episode kind of like uh, destroyed his ego, mm. in a way. And I say this because I remember um, an episode in, 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 one of, in his book about the astral journeying, where he meets the president, the Romanian president, in the in the in the seventies, he he journeys astrally and he meets um, Jorge Doja. This was the Romanian president in in the four, in forty six. So the so guy, the, the guy the, who put put everyone everyone uh, to dig the channel, all the intellectual, he put them in prison. All all the priests they they were put in prison. Everyone. So he met uh, during these journeys, he met this president, the guy who, who did it all. In the afterlife. The guy had died, right? Yeah, the guy had died in uh, 1956. Okay. And he met him, he, he went, I don't know, sometime in the 70s. Mm -hmm. He went in the astral and he met, met him. Mm -hmm. And what he did was he went to him and kissed his hand. Oh. And he said, uh, the guy asked, why are you kissing my hand? And he said, uh, I'm grateful to you because thank you, thanks to you I've known God. Hmm. So in a way, he saw these as devices because without the ethic episode, he would not have discovered the journeying part. Right. And then without the, the time in prison, maybe he wouldn't have been so focused on liberation because he had not after these harrowing, hair-raising experiences, he didn't care about the world. He didn't care about women or, you know, he was, he was, um, he had a job and he went to the job and, and then he came home, he was he, living alone for years and he, he was just focused on, on that. But yeah. I think from his point of view, he's grateful for those experiences, from what I've read. It's interesting. I mean, if we if we see the universe as one big evolution machine, uh, and you know God as having ev the evolution of all of life's expressions as His purpose and, and primary function, then from that perspective, concentration camps and all the horrible things that happen in the world, uh, you you, want, you know people say why how could these no. things happen if God is compassionate if God is you know if if, the, if it's all about evolution but what you're saying is an ex illustration. No, what, what I mean is for him it was a device, for others <coughs> maybe not. Well, I don't know. To justify you know? concentration camps, but for him it was the right device at the right time. Like uh, God gives the one the the ones with the greatest potential they give them he, greatest uh, tests tests not it's not about being comfortable it's not about sitting at home and and looking at the wall these tests help you grow like a, any trial helps you grow and in yeah. his case i think he he grew but uh, i i wouldn't venture to say that the um, you know the concentration nazi concentration camp that 
they they I don't I don't remember anyone getting enlightened from from this. Yeah, I'm just trying to put it in a larger context and to to make sense of such things and you know to suggest that in the in the really big picture perhaps yeah. perhaps everything that happens is in in the long run somehow conducive to our to our growth even though uh, I'm not condoning such things I wouldn't condone his the labor camps that Ile Tuara had to be in and and probably most no. of the most of the guys he was in there with didn't turn out <laughs> so well as he did you know yeah. I agree that's how he saw it as well he yeah said, he used to say it's it's karma right so. right right um, um at certain point in his life, did he end up starting to read a lot of scriptures and and you know spiritual literature, or did he never really? He didn't have it? he didn't have access to. I mean, even later on, uh, it's difficult to say what kind of books he had access to because mm -hmm. uh, in, in communist times, there were there was no there were no scriptures around. Yeah, like Krishnamurti, or the, yeah. it, they were banned. Like if if they found found out that you had them. Yeah, I was just curious because so many of his but, writings. Uh, I have uh, just to answer your question. Um, after he got out of prison, he met this dentist mm -hmm. who who had a, um, a spir spiritual no, spiritualist. Uh, they were doing. Uh, they had a medium. And they were talking to the dead, uh -huh. <laughs> and he met him. And this guy had a library, so he said, uh, "Each each week, I received a book from his oh. library, and I devoured it." And he was re he was reading, but it's difficult to say what he was reading because there were, there were not many. Okay, yeah, I was just curious because was, in, in reading was, his stuff, so much of it is is so you know eloquent and reminiscent of various scriptures that it almost seems like he had read them but maybe he had maybe he hadn't but there's a lot of profound knowledge in there it's very likely that he hadn't okay. uh, read because um, I mean it depends so, so uh, after his whole you know astral traveling phase then he got into a Jesus prayer phase right which is yeah it's the the normal you know, Christianity is Orthodox Christianity is the normal thing in Romania. But also, um, when he met this dentist and he um, he met this circle who they had um, an astral guide. There was this monk who was dead, and he was guiding them through a medium. So then he arrived and he joined the circle. And the, uh, they followed the teachings of this monk, and the monk was Christian, so the teachings were Christian. And even Eliachara was following a Christian path, and um, the, he was he started uh, practicing the mantra uh, mentioned in the the Russian Pilgrim book. Right, right. I read that. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a yeah. sinner. Yeah. He started doing that uh, for many years and he he went to this spiritual circle as I said uh, in communist times if they were caught they would have been arrested so um, there's not, not many possibilities to get books or but he he started on this path mainly because the the country is Christian and also the the guide the astral guide he who was guiding them because he hadn't 
he didn't know anything about uh, non-duality or right. stuff like He was a Christian for many years, sure. and he was doing this mantra. As I understand it, he did it very diligently, day and night. You know, even while he was working and stuff, this was going on in his mind. Yeah, for yeah. 20 years or 15. 20 years, yeah. So he went through it for a period of 15 or 20 years. He was in a phase of intense practice of the Jesus yeah. prayer. And then? And then at one point he realized that, um, I don't know, he... he, he, he experienced the block and he, he realized that um, the the mantra did not really uh, give him the, um, the liberation he was searching for mm -hmm. so he, he was really depressed for a few days for a couple of days he he thought I've been doing this mantra for 20 years and nothing nothing's happened and he, he describes it as um, all the changes our uh, experience were, were just a mask. So he, he exper experienced a period of crisis with this. And then uh, out of this crisis, he, he got this intuitive impulse to, to drop the mantra. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he, he started to, to just watch everything. He was watching... <clears throat> Whatever, whatever was around him, he was watching his thoughts, and he noticed that when he was watching his, his thoughts, um, the thoughts started to disappear, and there were pauses in between thoughts. And then he he tells this story that he was just when after work he came home and he was just listening to to the noises in the street, and um, and on on a Sunday when there were the, there were no noises he was listening to the silence so he's just listening and uh, that's that's why I say it's it's something um, he felt intuitively he didn't read about it I think uh, I don't know his expression is in a way he was very isolated so the way he expresses I mean uh, he touches on the same points that you you might might have read in other mystics, but I think he discovered them by himself because um, after after dropping the mantra and then a few years he was just trying to be silent, just uh, watching, just listening to all, all the noises without making any mental comments. Um, when he was 55, when he woke up, he noticed that some something was different. He, he felt like um, someone who had been blind from birth, who had been just, uh, who had just regained his sight following a surgery. So just one morning, he, he, felt, happened, he felt, happened to wake up from from sleep, and all of a sudden everything was different. In the morning, uh, he said he describes this. In the morning at I don't know five or six o'clock before going to work, he wakes up and he notices that his mind is completely silent mm -hmm. and he notices that um, he's different without searching for this he, he hadn't read about enlightenment and uh, he was going to church up to the last week before he experienced this he, he, he was regularly going to church and uh, he, he tells his story that uh, after he 
uh, he experienced, I don't know, uh, I, can't I can't describe it for him. <laughs> so he, he had this, he said, he, I didn't search for it, I didn't, it just came, but I had to be prepared for it. The, the, the years of uh, mantra practice prepared me for the silence, and the years of silence prepared me for that to happen. Just out of the blue in the morning, when he woke up, when he opened his eyes, it was like something happened. Yeah, I would say that you know all these things he went through, and and in a broader sense, all the things everybody goes through are just phases of preparation. And sometimes people have an, a final awakening, and then they say, "Oh, you don't need to do all that stuff. You know, just awaken." Yeah. But but they they kind of forget oh, that what they went through, and yeah. that actually those and things were instrumental in bringing him to yeah. that point. It's the same with Papaji. Mm-hmm. He did twenty twenty years. He was doing Ram, and I I actually read that he was doing Ram with the breath, and he was counting. He was doing I don't know six thousand times a day, and the mind he thought. Okay, I have to do it more. So if I if I breathe twelve thousand times a day, it's like quantitative thing. He, he was, okay, I'll breathe twelve like uh, in this way. I I'll do it more. But then after he awakened, he said, "Oh, no practice. Just be, just wait." But another thing I want to say. I mean, I'm I'm going off track a bit. No, uh, about Papaji. Uh, when he talks to, the, to his disciples, he says, um, just realize that you're free. If you're with a true guru, just re- realize that you're free. And uh, just like I did with Ramana. But I remember that he, he met Ramana the first time and he wasn't impressed. And then he, he did the mantra for 20 years. And then the second time he met, met him, he was ready. So yeah. I, I I agree with what what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny thing, but a, a lot of times the the intoxication of realization causes people to f- to forget or to not connect the things they have been doing, which led up to that realization. They they somehow just begin speaking and living from the state of experience that they're in. Uh, maybe maybe like they realize. Maybe they have a, a different perception, and they realize that there's no need for a teacher. That there's a shorter way, but maybe the people are not ready to listen to this message. Yeah, maybe so. Um, it's uh, interesting. Anyway, <laughs> so he woke up, and I have a, a, a sentence I wrote down here, which said, "When the mind is silent." a new mind appears, pure consciousness. So there's a lot of emphasis in his book on the silencing of the mind or on the mind being silent and that if the mind is sufficiently silent then pure consciousness shines forth. It's reflected clearly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Kind of like in the in traditions the analogy is used of water. If you have a, a a lake that has a lot of waves and ripples, then the sun doesn't reflect very clearly. But if the water becomes very still, then you get a very clear, bright reflection of the sun. You need sunglasses even to look at it. But the the silence of the mind does not necessarily mean the silence of the mouth. <laughs> because no, it I've, doesn't. I've met him. I've met him, and he was very talkative. But sure, this just sure. Means, this just means 
your si your mind is silent and words come out of your mouth without thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, this is one thing I like about him is his interdimensionality. In other words, he he doesn't have have this all or nothing approach where you're um, you know you 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 would have to be silent on all levels. He's fully comfortable with the he's very integrated approach where you could be a very talkative, dynamic, active person perhaps if that's your nature, and yet the found, there's this silent foundation of that that is your inner experience. Yeah, and, and he's he's very in favor of um, being in the world, mm -hmm. and he 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 says um, something in, like each challenge we face every day is um, is an opportunity to awaken. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what practical um, advice did he give, or did you extract from all of this in terms of stuff that people could actually take to heart and follow and do or whatever. Like for instance, if, if the silence, silencing of the mind is a valuable thing, then how does one silence the mind? You cannot try to silence the mind because that's the mind trying to silence the mind. Mm -hmm. I think um, he explains it best in, in his books better than I could try. I, I've studied them and I've practiced them and uh, but uh, what I could say is you cannot silence the mind so you have to, to realize that the, the goal the, the, not the goal because there's you cannot start with the goal but the, the um, destination is the silent mind but you cannot force it to be silent there is a poem where he says, "Do not try to be, <laughs> do not try to be simple." <laughs> so uh, his his main message, you know, I don't know. To well, here's here's. Let me help you. I mean, if uh, it seems that trying could very well be counterproductive, Just do like, not indulge in uh, his main message. Do not indulge in in overthinking in in uh, trying to understand it with your mind. Do not try to gather knowledge because it's useless and just uh, it's a very simple practice of witnessing just watching the whatever happens just watching the emotions watching the thoughts well, watching you, what's around you you I was going to say you probably are more familiar with his teaching than than just about anybody because you translated his books. So you know what have you personally extracted from all of that as and what impact in terms of some kind of practical application and what impact has it had on your life? Uh, as I said, it's a very simple practice, just watching the thoughts, watching the emotions, just. Uh, a watchfulness, he called it. He calls it all the all-encompassing attention, just uh, spontaneous um, attention without any purpose. And you just watch. You watch the thoughts. You watch the um, emotions. You watch what's around you, and it's it's something you have to do. You have to practice. You have to do and uh, it, you cannot force the mind to be silent mm -hmm. but uh, silence happens if you watch any anything you watch 
um, calms down. If you watch the mind, the mind starts to calm down. If you watch, if you're angry, and you, instead of saying, "Oh, I'm angry with him," so you you put your anger outside, you you, um, you tune into your make own someone responsible for your anger and say, "I'm angry with him," and then you focus your anger out. Instead of doing that, if you simply watch the anger, uh, emotions change. So uh, anger can, cannot. Uh, it's like a wheel. One, one moment you're angry, then you're sad. So uh, anger cannot exist without your involvement in it. So the moment you watch, everything calms down. So it's um, witnessing. It's something that unfolds through practice. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, when I, when I first started practicing it, it was one way. Then after a few months, it was, it's just something that unfolds, and it cannot be necessarily explained. It's, it, each person needs to explore it by himself through practice. And, and finally, what happens is that uh, you start by watching, either watching the thoughts or just watching uh, what's around you, but finally, uh, this attention in, includes everything. It's called all-encompassing all attention. So you're just attentive to whatever's happening in you and out. It's, it becomes one movement. When you first started doing it, or perhaps even now to some extent, did you find it divisive? In other words, if you were trying to, let's say, solve a balance your checkbook and you know, and you're focusing on that, and then at the same time you have to be watching your thoughts, uh, wouldn't that sort of uh, be, a, be a distraction? As I said, it, it's it's diff each time it's it's different, but it it does not have. Just let me let me remember because I'm, I'm doing. Now it's not divisive. Mm -hmm. I I can do anything, and there's um, there's an awareness there. Mm -hmm. But I have to remember what how it was in the beginning. As I said, it changes as you practice. You, you go deeper. Perhaps in the beginning you found but that it's not, it, it's not meant to be divisive. You, you, you can watch what you're doing, for instance. You, if you write a check, you, you watch your mind, and then you, you just watch your hand writing the check. You are fully in what you're doing, because usually you're not attentive to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's not, as I said, it's something that needs to be explored, and through practice, um, it deepens, and it becomes something that's it opens up. Yeah. Uh, even in the beginning stage, it's not, so, it's not like I'm doing a check and then I'm watching, my, I'm, I'm watching myself and that distracts me from writing a check. It's more like I can write a check or I can watch myself write a check, but I'm still there writing the check. It's not... It's just that people, uh, in the beginning, from my experience, you forget. So you get involved. You write the check, and then you, you forget to watch. But um, then you remember again, okay, I watch myself write the check. And then you forget again, and then you remember again. So that, that was my experience in the beginning. But it changes, like, through practice, it changes. At some point, you just, you're there, there's very few few thoughts in your head, and you just write a check. So, um, in the beginning, at least, um, was in the there beginning, you you can even 
it's possible that you do it with your mind because the mind tries to watch but uh, without this stage you won't go deeper okay. so in the beginning it's possible that the mind is trying to watch but uh, slowly slowly it needs to be relaxed uh, with uh, patient mm -hmm. so uh, a relaxed patient watchfulness um, without following any goals you just watch right. whatever appears you, you watch it's like a laser he called like a laser yeah so, and so, so you, you watch and you, so watch, you, you watch right so this watchfulness slowly slowly starts to open up and it becomes all-inclusive it's not it's not like concentration where okay I focus on the check I don't see anything else I don't hear anything else and just write a check the, uh, watchfulness begins by, or witnessing, begins by, first you, you can watch the body, you watch your physical body because the physical body is always in the now, or you watch the mind, you watch something, but uh, with practice uh, this witnessing unfolds and it becomes all inclusive, so it includes the mind, it includes the emotions, it includes the physical body, it includes whatever is around you, if you, watch a, if you uh, watch a beautiful sunset, or if you watch a beautiful woman, or whatever it is. So if it, you had to go in for... It unfolds. But in the beginning it can be that you watch the thoughts and you feel like you're watching something. Got it. So if you had to go in for brain surgery, would you want to have a surgeon who was just beginning the practice of watching his thoughts, or would you rather have a surgeon who wasn't doing that because you wouldn't want him, because perhaps the guy that was just starting this practice would be a little bit divided and distracted by trying to do I it? I don't know how to answer this question, because the guy who's not watching, maybe he's doing it automatically, but maybe he's not paying attention. So he's maybe thinking of something else. So he might make a mistake because he's not there. Uh -huh. And someone who starts to watch maybe maybe is more attentive. Okay. So so the reason I asked that question is the fact that he's is not watching it, it's not guaranteed that he's paying attention. Right. So in other words, this watching process that you're talking about isn't necessarily, even from the beginning, going to cause any kind of reduction in one's efficiency. In fact, it no, may it may even enhance it. Yeah, because the less you think, the more, the 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 less mind stuff, the less confusion there is. So just do it. You you pick up something, you put it there. You don't have to think. Most most activities in uh, in our life, you don't have to think about it. You can right. do it. You can do them without thinking. You can go to the supermarket, buy what you need. I don't I don't know how to say it, but there's no need for thinking. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I, I've always thought of witnessing as more of a condition than a practice, but um, you, because you're it's not it's not concentration. Right. It's just a gentle attention. In the attention. beginning, maybe maybe in the beginning, but it's not supposed to be like that. So if you do something, then watch what you're doing, because watchfulness is. It's something that grows, but it's not necessarily uh, connected to an object. You can watch the thoughts. You can watch what you, but you can also watch what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, like brain, brain surgery, you can watch yourself. You can watch the thoughts. 
or you can you can simply okay I'm doing I'm opening skull I'm doing this pencil so I'm watching what I'm doing mm -hmm. attentively so the, this watchfulness in the beginning it's it's like a small bud but uh, with practice it starts to unfold and then it includes everything so mm. maybe in the beginning if some if someone misunderstands witnessing maybe in the beginning but it's it's the opposite of concentration it's not concentration but maybe in the beginning but it should it shouldn't uh, decrease your attention it should increase your attention okay even in the you have to be attentive and uh, Ilecho, he was he was living in the busiest city in Romania he was in the capital so it, it everything stuff being thrown at you every day and he said each 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 new thing that appears makes me be more attentive yeah well you know a few minutes ago you were talking about anger as an example and you were saying you know ordinarily a person says I'm angry at him and the whole focus is on him and mm -hmm. with this watching practice you know it's more like one is tuning into one's own feeling one one's own inner experience of anger and you maybe the phrase self-referral you just say, I feel angry. Yeah. No, I'm angry at him. Uh, there's a feeling in me that's called anger. Mm -hmm. Go so on, you, I don't want to interrupt you. So you cultivate a, a, a condition of self-referral rather than object referral. It's not, it's not repression. Right. So it's a middle path between repression and expression. Mm -hmm. you, you might want to live it, for instance. If you feel angry with someone, you go into a room and you you express it with your body but you don't you don't dwell on it you don't linger you don't linger on the thought that he's it's his fault and then you you're angry at that person for three days and you think you wake up in the night and you think oh, I'm so angry at that guy because he did that to me so uh, witnessing it's it's neither repression nor expression you don't that's it I don't know how to explain it, but uh, if you watch it, it comes down. I don't know how to explain it to the. I understand. You. You're explaining it. Um, what happens in your experience when you go to sleep at night? And did Ilya ever talk about what, what his experience was during sleep? Um, that you can recall? From my experience for now, I go to sleep, I fall asleep. Mm -hmm. I have less dreams, but the the, the ultimate uh, flowering of meditation is when even during deep sleep you 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 are awake. Right. You are aware of what's happening and you feel like uh, your body is falling asleep but part of you stays awake. Mm -hmm. But I haven't experienced that. Okay, I would suggest that you're not necessarily aware of of what's happening, because your senses are shut down. But pure awareness remains, you know, without any object during sleep, Is and that and that's a level of witnessing that eventually gets established. You you witness you witness twenty four hours a day. You witness from the moment you wake up. Slowly, slowly, with the passing of the years, the the practice deepens. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the flowering of this practice is when, when witnessing continues even during deep sleep. Right. I suppose that's enlightened. So enlightened people, uh, they don't lose. I mean, 
I don't know how to describe it because it's not my experience. Mm -hmm. So it's it's in a way it's hearsay, but uh, it's it's kind of a part of you stays awake. You don't remain awake. You feel like your body falls asleep, and may, maybe some, some I've had this experience, and maybe some other some of the viewers have had this experience where you feel like uh, you meditate and you feel like the body is falling asleep. The the eyes are closing and you feel like part of you is falling asleep and then part of you is awake mm -hmm. but I haven't had experiences where all night I am I remain awake that's yeah my experience yeah. well it's, th it's not that part of your individuality remains awake it's that your universal pure consciousness is always awake what would happen to the universe if that slept yeah. uh, you know the, it, the uh, whole, that's the foundation of the whole, of everything and so you know it just is a matter of having enough uh, appreci conscious appreciation of that such that um, there's a con one's awareness of that is, or one's just, one's uh, being in that as that is a continuum that is like the you know the waves of waking dreaming sleeping keep keep undulating but that underlying silence of so a deeper aspect of the ocean remains awake i agree you describe it perfectly yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why you know the whole topic of witnessing I, f I find interesting because on the one hand witnessing as you've described it can be a practice where you're just a, in you the know, beginning you, it's a practice in the beginning the but eventually it's a state yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a condition. Yeah, uh, and but the more you do it, the more spontaneous, effortless it becomes. Yeah, to the point where, as we've been saying, it could be that that witnessing per persists throughout deep sleep. Now, obviously, if that's what's going on, it couldn't be a practice then, because how no. can you practice anything when you're asleep? It's just, <laughs> it's just you're asleep, you know. Witnessing starts as a practice only because we have we have a very active mind. Right. So it starts starts as the practice, but uh, ultimately the the practice starts to disappear. The effort starts to disappear, and then mm -hmm. you you're just it's it's called just being. You just are. Right. Right. But you also feel like uh, the the limits disappear. You could almost say that the the purpose or, or any really effective practice is actually going to put itself out of business. You know, it's going to exterminate itself. It's going to come yeah, to a culmination yeah, where the, the practice itself is transcended. Yeah. But it's kind of like swimming. Mm -hmm. uh, how, the way you learn swimming. Uh, meditation is kind of like swimming. Uh, it's, it's something that uh, you cannot explain. You cannot explain to someone how, how to swim. But what, what you can do is uh, you can... You can um, Make him practice these movements mm -hmm. and uh, move his hands and his feet, and then uh, throw him in the water. And then he moves his hands and his feet, and at, at one point he gets it, and he yeah. knows how to stay afloat. And then he doesn't need to to make such a big effort to stay afloat. But right. with witnessing, it's, it's, it's the same thing. Um, in the beginning, it's a practice. Some uh, it needs to be a very relaxed and this disinterested practice mm -hmm. but it's a practice because the mind is very active so it's the only way to it's because of the mind that it's like that but slowly slowly you you relax you it becomes something that's 
very spontaneous. So uh, after years of practice, then it's, it's no longer a practice. It's just a state of being. You just realize, oh, there was a thought. Or you, you just stay, wh wherever you are. For instance, I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm looking outside the window. And I just see everything around me. Where can I be? I can only be here. And then I notice, whoops, there's a thought. But it's not, it's not as, uh, uh, it's, it's not an effort the way it used to be in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So the eff like you say, the practice needs to destroy itself. Yeah, yeah. But you have to start with the A, B, C to get to the X, Y, Z. Right. You exactly. have to practice it, you have to practice it for, for it to destroy itself. Otherwise you just remain in the mind. Mm -hmm. If you don't practice anything, then you just remain in the mind. So, in the beginning, there is, in truth, there is no need for a practice. But in the beginning, because the mind is so active, there is a need to practice. Yeah. But as the mind becomes more silent, then it's not a practice. It's like you say, it's just, just being. It's just uh, who, who you are, or whatever you want to call it. It's just who you are. Well, in, in truth, that. we're... In truth, we're all we're all already enlightened, but you know that's just a conceptual notion for for most people, and it doesn't do you any good to to just yeah. entertain that as a truth. There there needs to be. Yeah, it can it can be an excuse. You're already enlightened, so then don't bother like doing need anything. to do anything. Yeah, it's an excuse and, and, for laziness. Yeah, and people who do something then they look they they look stupid because you're already enlightened. So why why do you practice? Why are you doing anything? Yeah. <laughs> I I disagree completely. I mean, when when someone when when um, I don't know um, a true enlightened when an enlightened person says you're already enlightened, uh, it is not necessarily true that the person who repeats that understands what the person meant, because. Uh, Maybe, maybe he's saying. Maybe the I don't know the the enlightened person says you're already enlightened. Maybe he says it to encourage you. But then the mind will will take anything and use it for its own ends. Like oh, I'm already enlightened. Okay, I can just roll over and uh, put my Part head on the pillow and yeah, uh, party on. Pretty enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> um, did Ilya talk much about the body? I, I, I was reading one portion where he was saying how his heart had been damaged by all the, the hard labor, and he, he did a healing thing where he was the spiritual energy was able to come in and heal his heart, and then he felt much better. Um, does he talk much about the body as a vehicle, as a vehicle to enlightenment, and as a, as a, like a, a chariot that takes you to the goal, and that you need to culture that chariot and keep, it, keep the wheels greased and everything to, to reach the goal? He, do, he doesn't talk much about it, but I think he goes without saying. Mm -hmm. in, in his works, he goes without saying that you have to respect the body. Mm. And uh, well, I wanted to tell you about the, my meeting with him. Okay, yes, please. Okay. <laughs> Moment. <laughs> do you get emotional when you think of it? <laughs> no, I just had a blank moment because. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> I had so um, I discovered one of his books. It was two thousand and two, uh, and this crazy, crazy thought came to my mind. I wrote to his publisher and I said, 
Well, where can I find this? I thought he was already dead because you only find out about people like this when they're already gone. <laughs> so I asked him. Um, I asked his publisher, and then his publisher sent me a letter with his phone number. So I called him and I said, uh, I want to come and see. Uh, the publisher said uh, he's open to anyone who wants to visit him. So I called him and I said, uh, okay, I wanted to visit. It was about an um, eight-hour journey on a train. <clears throat> and uh, he said, okay, come tomorrow. So I got on the first train and... Um, I got there the, the next morning, and uh, regarding what you said about his heart, uh, when I met him he was 86 years old, but I didn't know that, and I thought he was about 60. So he was 86 and I was 22 or 23, and uh, I felt he was more alive than I was. I felt like he, the way he moved, he was like, he was very very much alive and uh, I looked into his eyes because I wanted to see his eyes because I, I, I'd seen you know the eyes of the enlightened in many photos like photos of uh, Papaji or Ramana or Osho or so I wanted to see his eyes so uh, I rang the door and then um, I saw you know the the, um, the same eyes I had seen in um, in photos but it was different because it w they were live. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't just. It, it was an experience. It was like, and the biggest lesson I got from it was like, it is possible for me to, <laughs> because I had read it. I read, uh, okay, there's a thing called enlightenment, stuff like that. But when I saw him, I was like, oh yeah, it's real. <laughs> it's real. It's possible. It's possible for me to, and so that's what I want to say. He he t he talks about his heart problem and and his. His main message, there's, there's another poem, Mind Destroys the Body. His main message is, if the mind is silent, then the body repairs itself. Mm -hmm. And if the mind is very active, the, the mind destroys the body. Mm -hmm. So what he did was, was just, um, in the poem he described, just sitting in silence and just surrendering. And just saying, okay, I surrender, and just being silent. And... Uh, Somehow the heart regenerated. He wrote a lot of books before he died. He wrote about five books in the last two or three years. He wrote a lot. Are you going to translate them? So what, what, what's been published so far is uh, they're all compilations of what I thought were the best stuff. And I, I also needed to convince the publisher to publish it. So I chose the best poem, so it's interesting in some way to the reader. I couldn't publish them um, the way they were originally published because it would be it would have been a boring book from from the point of view of the the publisher. Mm. So it's just for now it's uh, the four compilations, and I have another, two more that I've translated. Mm -hmm. Mainly the the poem prose parts other than the the astro so um there's there will be six books in total but you know, if if someone is interested in publishing them i i will translate more but for now i wanted to 
not be so scary, scary for for an ordinary re reader. So you were saying that there so might I, be something scary for the reader in some of these unpublished books, and you not wanted scary, to but, uh, uh, might off-putting uh, in some way. The the problem is the poems were written in in um, rhythm and rhyme, mm -hmm. so it's very very difficult to write something meaningful in rhythm and rhyme. So when you translate them, it's not so interesting, but uh, they're very repetitive. Mm -hmm. It's not scary, just repetitive. And you want them to be interesting, engaging. Yeah, I, I made these four books in a way that that's engaging. So maybe because it's all it's all uh, a business mm -hmm. publishing. So yeah, yeah. the books sell, then more people become interested in them. If right. the books don't sell, then nobody knows about them. Right. So on. And the publisher so I, doesn't want to do any more. I I tried about a hundred publishers before I found this publisher. So wow. it's more like doing a best of album. Yeah. And putting out a best of album, and then if people are really interested in it, then I can translate some more. That's mm -hmm. the idea. This uh, this point you brought up a few minutes ago about the the mind either destroying or healing the body depending upon whether it's active or silent. Um, yeah, he says ninety nine percent of diseases are created by the mind. Mm -hmm. So the body has a huge potential of re regenerating itself and healing itself, but it does not have enough energy to do that because most of the energy goes into the mind. Right. And also, it's worth mentioning that the mind and body are interrelated. So, if the mind is all agitated, the body's going to be all agitated, and yeah. vice, vice versa. So, if you can quiet either one of them, they'll both quiet and down yeah. together. And then, and then, when the body is quiet, it naturally heals itself, just as it does yeah. during sleep. You know, when we get rid of all the fatigue and, and the stress of the day. Also, when when the mind is silent, the the body fills up with energy. So exactly. Enough energy. Sometimes you feel like when you think, when you're depressed, then you feel drained mm -hmm. so uh, <clears throat> that's because the body is drained of energy because too much energy is going into the mind right um, feel free to interject any ideas that we're not talking about uh, but I had another one on my list here um, when, when I was reading his book he he had a whole chapter or section on the evolution of consciousness and yeah. he, he took the sort of traditional I guess maybe it's a Vedic view that we evolve over millions of years through all sorts of species we might start out our soul essence or whatever he called it might start out as a rock you know and then become a plant eventually and then animals we go through various animal but, species and eventually reach the human level wh where enlightenment becomes possible from from how I understand it, he wrote that from his own experience. Uh, all everything he wrote, he said, it's from my experience. I didn't read it in a book. I was going to ask and you that maybe actually. He yeah. rediscovers the wheel. Maybe it's stuff that uh, other mystics have said, but for him, it's simply communicating his experience. He cognized it. Yeah. So if right. he writes something from reading all his books. Even if you read it in some other book, it, he writes it because he's experienced it. Yeah, so I, I got that sense in reading him. And I respected him all the more for bringing out ideas like that because a lot of times 
um, spiritual teachers and writers these days are a little bit simplistic in my opinion um, and they wouldn't entertain such a notion that there is some entity or some some soul core of our, our, our being which could evolve over long spans of time to higher and higher expressions but to me that makes perfect sense I don't know he even says that the, the rock feels so if yes, you a rock mm-hmm. or if, if um, if it's hot, the, the rock will suffer. Or if it's very cold, the, he, he says that if you watch the rock, and feel, I mean, the, the, <clears throat> the normal uh, state of perception of a human being is in, in a normal state of perception, we're unable to feel the rock, what the rock feels. Mm-hmm. But he says that uh, he feels the consciousness in the rock, and the rock suffers. And it's a... a Basic, more basic life form, but it's. I don't know. That's what. That's what. It's, Everything uh, is alive. Everything is alive, even a rock. And we have been rocks once. Yeah. Sometimes I still think I'm one. Um, and, and you know, they've done experiments on plants where they'll have plants hooked up to some sort of electrodes, and then maybe they'll bring a flame near it or or something that would threaten the plant. And even though it's not actually yeah. harming it yet, the the plant reacts to that danger. They, they can tell. And they the communicate. Right. There's all sorts. If you of cut a tree, then uh, in some other part of the forest, uh, other trees will feel fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they communicate. Mm-hmm. Another thing I wanted to say about about how how he started writing these poems mm-hmm. in 1971, uh, when he had the experience in the morning where he woke up and uh, he says uh, <clears throat> he, he he was no writer, he wasn't a writer by trade or he he never wrote anything in his life and. Uh, a few a few days after that thing happened, that experience, he felt this impulse to write. And the the reason I mention it is because he, he felt this impulse to write poems. So he wrote about three hundred poems in a year, from seventy one till seventy two, and then he didn't write anything for sixteen years. Mm. He just felt he had to something. And he said, "I'm not a poet, but I had to be a poet. I had to become a poet because I wanted to to express it." But he was not attached to. He didn't publish his uh, what he wrote. He had to hide it in um, in a friend's apartment because he was uh, because he was an ex political convict. Uh, the secret services maybe they searched his house when he wasn't at home, so he he had to hide it with a friend. But what I'm trying to say is, uh, so in '71 he wrote about 300 poems, and then he stopped. For 16 years he didn't write anything, and then in 1988, I don't know how, but he felt he had to write again, and that that somehow he felt that in 1989 the fall of communism would come. Mm. So then he started writing again. I don't know another 600 poems. But he didn't set out, what I'm trying to say is, he didn't set out to write, he didn't set out to become a teacher. He just wrote 300 poems and said, then said, I'm free. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then an, an, uh, after 16 years, then another impulse, okay, I have to write again. I don't know why, but I will do it. Yeah, just like, <laughs> your, just like your impulse to translate, it just kind of came up. <laughs> um, did he ever talk about 
uh, I mean, he talked a lot about the, the developments in his life prior to his enlightenment, you know, hiding in the attic and the astral travel and the, and the Jesus prayer and all that stuff. After his enlightenment, that morning when he woke up, both literally and, and spiritually, uh, did he ever talk about what sort of progress or integration or development he underwent in the weeks and months and years after that time? He talks about the first few hours. Mm -hmm. He said that he was so dumbfounded by the experience that he couldn't... He said he... <clears throat> he couldn't... It took him a few hours to realize what, what had happened. He was just stunned. He talks about that. that he, it took him a few hours to realize what's happened. It was just like a, a state of being just stunned. But um, he, he doesn't talk much about an integration of the experience. Okay, or an evolution. Just happened. I mean, did he, he say said, that his experience... He said, he said like this. He said, uh, the shell of the ego is broken. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's no integration. The, the shell has broken and uh, uh, enlightenment happened. But there, I, d I don't remember him mentioning uh, the need for integration. Okay. I'm well, just curious because I, I have sort of the attitude, and I may be wrong, that uh, there's no end to it. You know, in fact, uh, there's a St. Teresa quote where she says, even God himself is still on the journey, that, you know, that no matter how enlightened one may be, there's still further unfoldment or, or refinement or something. So, and I may be wrong, as I said, but, but I'm just curious if you ever commented on that. I, I agree with you. What I'm, I didn't mean that it stopped there. Oh, okay. That's what I was well, wondering. All I meant was, uh, he said, the, the shell of the ego broke and uh, I can go into the infinite dimension whenever I want to or something like this. Mm -hmm. But he did, he did not uh, insist on... And uh, what you just said, I think it's the case with him. It's, it's an ongoing experience. It's, it never stops. Okay. But it, uh, he doesn't insist upon it much because he's wh when he writes he's interesting in the person who write who reads so he's interesting in showing the way he's not interested in this describing and uh, making writing treated treatises or uh, philosophical dissertation on what happens after you become enlightened he's interested in sharing with people how to get, get enlightened yeah. To get there. When he writes, he's not concerned about himself. He's more concerned about, okay, if you want to get there, this is how you, how you can do it. So what I'm saying is he doesn't mention it much. Hmm. I, I, haven't, I don't remember reading much where he, he actually describes what happens after enlightenment, okay. if it's an integration or not. Well, I agree with you that you know, for most people, it's not perhaps relevant because they haven't reached that stage yet. But when, um, but I think it's becoming more and more. When you reach it, you will know. Yeah, but it, it is, it's actually becoming more relevant because more and more people are reaching it. And in fact, some people like Adyashanti actually write whole books about how, what to do or you know, how it's you know, the, dealing with issues that arise after awakening. You know. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's, it's it's an interesting field to explore. I remember that poem. That poem. There's two poems about the seven bodies where he he right, tells yeah talk about that for a minute. There's these poems where he he talks about the seven bodies and uh, the fifth is the body of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. 
So when you become, when you experience enlightenment, there is a fifth, and then he he talks about the pitfalls of what happens in the fifth. That you can uh, get stuck. It's like a you can get stuck. It's like a paradise. You're happy, so you do, you get stuck there. And then there's the sixth, which is the cosmic. Mm -hmm. And then there's the seventh, the nirvana, which is pure light. Maybe, maybe these terms are um, familiar from other teachers. But he's not overly concerned with what happens. He does mention this with the seven bodies, but uh, the focus is to take take you by the hand, take you there, and then when you experience it, you will know. But he doesn't, he doesn't mention much. Yeah, okay. No, it's interesting. Uh, another thing I wanted to say about, mm -hmm. about my meeting with him, I don't know if you've interviewed many people, I don't know if this has come up, but uh, my, my experience meeting him, it was, uh, I was in his apartment and I couldn't think. It was just blank, mm -hmm. and then I looked into his eyes. I saw this thing with the eyes, and uh, we sat down. And then he said, um, "said uh, Do you have anything to ask?" And I said, "No." <laughs> and, no, I'm, I'm not interested in theory. I said something. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in theory. And then I, sa I just sat there, and then I felt like he he came out of his body, and he, it was like a shower. Of energy, mm. and then I felt I started laughing. I felt happy. I don't know. It's I don't know if I describe it the way it happened, but my feeling was like he he got out of his body and he entered mind, and he was there was this explosion of happiness. But what I wanted to say is uh, when I met him, there was a lot of fear. I I, I was there was a lot of fear. Fear of, of him or of what? I don't know. It's just there's a strong energy, mm -hmm. but I felt fear. I mean, maybe mm. the eye felt fear, I but I, it was just like this irrational fear, and there was a feeling, of, wow, wonderful energy, great, but um, there was also a lot of uh, panic. What do, you, what do you make of that? How do you interpret that? Uh, my mind was afraid. Because mm -hmm. it was being exterminated or it something? Was, it was just, you f I don't know, if you, I think this is how, you, how I understand why people kill Jesus. But when he's dead, then they worship him. But when he's alive, they, they, they just want him. <laughs> yeah. They, they want him to go away. Mm. Because there's, uh, I felt... In his apartment, I felt a uh, strong energy. He said, "Do you want me to ask?" Uh, uh, he said, "Do you want to ask something?" He, re he said it over. Ask me something. And I said, "I can't think." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "That's no problem. Go home, write it down, and then come back." He said, "He said uh, uh, other people have told me the same thing that when they're here, they can't think, but right. it's like this this." Uh, Powerful energy, like a vortex, and uh, and the the mind is afraid. The part of you is afraid. The ego, I, I don't know how to call it. No, I think I, I know. I definitely know what you mean. Fear, so yeah, I, I was afraid also. 
I was happy to be there, but I, there was, I don't know, there was a fear. And I couldn't think. <laughs> I just went blank. <laughs> so, so ask me something, anything. I, I think a lot of people will a lot of people will be able to relate to that actually if they've ever met a great being like that it just the the very presence you know drags you into the transcendent and then all your normal faculties don't function as they are accustomed to functioning and you know and everybody talks about fear as being the final frontier so to speak the final gatekeeper to between us and and wholeness or unity because it's it's something which that you know, it uh, it's characteristic of duality. There, as long as there's duality, there can be danger and threat and fear and so on. And when duality starts to dismantle, as it would in his presence, but in this case, there was no fear reason. rises. No, no reason. It's not. It's like, not a rational this, uh, thing. A nice old man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he looks about sixty. Mm -hmm. What can he do? But it's. I, I suppose the mind is afraid. When when there's silence, then the mind goes, oh. <laughs> Yeah, because because your mind is is sort of it's it's facing its annihilation, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why it's, that's why the fear comes up. Yeah. 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 Nice. So how long was that relationship? Did you see him for a couple of days? No, and I, I yeah, and then um, I left. The next year I left for Italy, mm -hmm. and uh, at, at that time I, I I wasn't ready for his message, mm. and then the mind. Also started to rationalize stuff, mm -hmm. and then I, I don't know. I just I went to Italy the next year, so, I, and the the next year I came back and I called him, and then he was gone. Ah, uh, huh. well, I think but it. it I, was. I wasn't ready for. I was very much infatuated with techniques, and I wanted to experience experience this technique, and I had you know my mind was going in another <laughs> in another direction. I, in a way, I missed. I missed him. I didn't yeah. understand him when I met him. I understood him later. Yeah. And there was this fear also, which the there's fear, and then the mind rationalizes, and then he finds, okay, uh, I need to go there. Um, he's he sounds too Christian for me. Were many people and, and coming to see him? I mean, things. did he have like little socks or anything? Day. Sorry. I say, were many people coming to see him, or or was it kind of rare? Did he have a little gathering that would talk to him? I don't know if, I don't know. If, I think he had a few friends, but mm -hmm. the, he didn't condone satsang. Mm. He he was very much um, saying, you have to do the work, you have to get there, you have to do witnessing, and he he didn't condone people just sitting there. He didn't like. The, he was against the the guru master, yeah. guru disciple thing. So he had no conditioning, no Indian conditioning. Mm -hmm. Just discovered this. So it was just me. But uh, from what I know, over the years he re he received many visitors, including just curious people. Mm -hmm. He was open to talking to anyone. And he just opened the door, and he didn't know who I was. He didn't know my name, and he did that with everyone. And he didn't charge anything. He was just sharing. But I don't think many people were aware of him when he was alive in Romania, at least. 
Well, it's ironic, but you know, you've only you only met him a couple of times, and you felt like you weren't ready to really appreciate him, and you went on and did other things. But as it all turned out, he's had a huge impact on your life, and you've had had a huge impact in terms of popularizing him, but making him better known to the world. I feel him right now. He's yeah, here. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, as we talk about him, he's here. I've I've spent the last few years in his presence. So translating was like a kind of a satsang. Mm-hmm. So maybe he left his body, but he's here. Anyone who who reads opens the book, he's there. So if you open the book, read the poem, you he he will come. <laughs> But when I met him, I, I was 22. I don't know, but I don't know what happened. But I, I guess I was too much in the mind to really understand its value. Mm. Well, it's all turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, you've transla- translated four beautiful books, and you've organized them into a way that makes them fascinating and interesting yeah. to read and publishable, and all. So it's all you know, it's all unfolding as it's meant to. I would say. Yeah. Everything at the right time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this notion that he's here, you know, with you and he's here if one reads his book. I mean, I don't it's find that, that's not just a figure of speech. That that no, sort of, no, I no. think it, uh, things actually work that way. Many people have reported that sort of experience with Ramana. I mean, when these people drop the physical body, they don't necessarily uh, dissolve like some drop into the ocean, never to have any sort of in, individual influence again. They they still can play a role in the course of human events. Yeah, with the with the photograph or it's just the physical body. It's gone, but the person is <laughs> the when Ramana was alive or when he was alive, he was not the body. So the body drops. It's just the body. Yeah, he's but still not he, the body. It's still the same. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I As like this. As Ilya put it in one of his books, the 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 body's like a a vehicle which has kind of a outlived its its usefulness or effectiveness. I think yeah. he said it just reaches a point at which is more of a burden than a, than a help, and so you drop it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you get a new one. Maybe you don't. It's, a, it's like a car. You yeah, break yeah. down. <laughs> you can't. Yeah, at a certain point, it's just becoming too expensive to repair it all the time. It's, it makes more sense to get a newer one. <laughs> I like the story on uh, Ramakrishna, where um, uh, a per- someone was, was worshipping a picture of Ramakrishna. Mm-hmm. And uh, they asked him, why, why do you worship a picture? And he says, uh, well, when the Master was alive, there was his physical body, and now the picture is his physical body. Mm. <laughs> uh, I like the story. Nice. So is there anything more you'd like to say about him that we haven't covered? I mean, there, there's so many. You know, as I said in the beginning, I, I feel like these are books that I'll actually keep and continue to read the rest of my life because there's, there's a depth to them that you can, go, you, can read, appre- you can appreciate more and more as, you, as yeah. your own depth improves. Yeah, as, as your, your experience deepens, you find more, more and more. Yeah, yeah. I, I've reread. It's, it's, it's something you read. The Silence of the Mind, the the first book, which I, I gave more mo- the most attention. Then the the sec- it's like having the first child and then the second. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've reread that book many times, and parts of it I've reread hundreds of times, and mm. it's like it's an experience. 
So it never gets old. It's not, it's not something like you read and then you know. It's something like you read and then two months later when you read again, you find something new in it. It's, it's like a mirror of your own experience. It's mm -hmm. Exactly. Very well said. Do you read it in the original Romanian or do you read your own, your own translation? Both. Both. Okay. Good. I like to read it in Romanian as well. It's mm -hmm. a different... Flavor flavor it's it's very there's a rhythm there's rhyme sometimes i find it annoying <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah both why not Good. but when i read the english version i don't i don't read it like i've wrote it i, I don't feel that i read like okay i've just discovered this book yeah <laughs> you were you were just the pen. The pen doesn't write the book. The the, the person yeah. writes the book and uses the pen. But to get the thing is that he describes his writing the same way. Mm -hmm. That he was the pen in the hand of the of God, mm. or God of uh, existence. So he, when he wrote the poems, he describes the same thing. He didn't say, "I wrote these poems." He said, "I'm just the pen." Yep. I just wrote. And that's why he's completely disinterested. Like, he wrote 300 poems in a year, and then he stopped. He felt like, okay, if you want me to write some more, I will. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Alrighty. Well, I think any any I don't know any mystic who writes does not feel that he's writing. Right. Anything. So I think he his uh, his view of what he wrote is the same. He was just uh, an instrument. A pen. Right. And he there he has a poem where he says, uh, use me God use me as much as you want. Because mm. I am your instrument. Yeah. Something like this. I haven't translated that one. <laughs> Reminds me of the Saint Francis prayer, you know, make me an instrument of thy peace. Yeah, exactly yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right. Um, is there any particular poem that is your absolute favorite that you would like to uh, leave us with? We could actually read it in closing this interview. Yeah. I'll, I'll read it. You could grab it fast and read it. It's called I Am Boundlessness. <clears throat> I Am Boundlessness. I am spontaneous simplicity, mind, heart, and feeling, a whole being, absolute fullness, love in action. This state reveals itself naturally. When the mind is awakened, all becomes one. The past melts away in the light of all-encompassing attention. In emptiness, the sacred reveals itself in its natural brilliance. Experiencing the moment, the personal mind is dissipated, expanding into affinity as universal mind. Each such encounter transforms us radically, for in each sparkle of consciousness 
We are newness, divinity, reality. Uh, I'll do another one. I feel generous. I'll do another one. Sure. It's called the... called the power of emptiness. The void or psychological emptiness is a strange phenomenon. It appears spontaneously in the pause between two thoughts. As the old thought ends its course and disappears, its end is the gate. Natural silence ensues. Persist in being with it as much as you can. The mind is completely silent. We are attentive, clear consciousness. All meanings, boundaries disappear. Us and the infinite are one. Practically we have a new mind, always fresh. Being in the pause, I become infinite. It separates two worlds. I leave the limited world and enter boundlessness through total, total melting. The whole being is calm, a constant sparkle. There is no time, no space, just everlasting eternity. I move in direct contact with life in a permanent present. I am pure energy without motivations. The simplicity of existence integrates us completely. We really encounter life only through this now. Free from the old, we are able to embrace the new. All this beauty vanishes when another thought appears. It comes from the knowing mind, an old recording. Let it play its game, do not oppose any resistance. Encounter it as it is, without any purpose. It will certainly disappear, and emptiness ensues again. Another opportunity to encounter it practically. We find the real meaning of life through this void. It is a boundary line between two worlds. On the one side, the limited, where the ego is the master. On the other, the infinite, where love is the master. Let this psychological emptiness be your guide in everything you encounter on your spiritual path. If it's not the starting point, we easily get deceived. Only through emptiness will become love. Very nice. <clears throat> Those are great. So that gives people a taste of these poems, and then after each one there's a, there's a prose uh, dis yes. dis discussion about the, the same theme. Um, and as I mentioned in the beginning, there are 
for such books in print. Um, I'll link to them all from my website. Uh, they're on Amazon. I presume people can buy them there. Uh, yeah, so I'll link to them. And, um, and also you have a website, which I'll be linking to. Um, so thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion. It's, it's been great um, getting to meet you and getting to meet Ilya through you. Um, I think it's wonderful work you're doing in the world, bringing him to everyone's attention. I think, um, you know, perhaps the biggest impact of his life is yet to come in terms of, you know, yeah, long-term influence that that his writings will have. So that's great, and and he he is probably behind the scene, or you know, smiling down upon you from on high, however we want to put it, and playing a hand in all this. So. He's, he's working in other levels because he's, yeah. like I said, there's nobody, but he's there and he's, he's he doesn't have any limits. So right. he's working on various levels. Mm -hmm. It's not just me. I'm just like uh, one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And perhaps the time... I think everyone who reads the, the books will be able to feel his presence. Mm-hmm. And when you leave this life, perhaps you'll get the opportunity to kiss his hand. <laughs> Good. So thank you. Um, let me just make some concluding I don't, remarks. I don't. I don't let the, this. It's like a mer merging. Right. Right. It's like French. It's like I try to disappear in him. I, I don't want. I don't want to get into this trip that oh I'm the guy who I feel like is a friend I feel like some someone I've spent time with and a friend and someone I merge with and someone who through his energy he's helping me expand yeah my perception I think that's the right attitude in fact when you look at his books you can hardly find your name in it it's like some tiny little print in the <laughs> beginning you know who, translated you know by by Pat, Patrick uh, uh, Verdes but otherwise you're, you're obviously not tooting your own horn here after I, I translate then I correct because my duty to <laughs> give a, a correct uh, grammatically correct mm -hmm. text but then I, for, I forget I read it as if it's not it's, my it's fresh right it, I read it as if it's just a book I'm reading. I, I don't think that I've, well, I've written. Right. I did, because yeah. ultimately you haven't. In some way, just the pen. <laughs> yeah, you are, exactly. You're just the pen. The pen of the pen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Shall we conclude? Yes. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Um, so I've, I've been speaking with Patrika Verdes, who is the translator for uh, Ilya Chiara's books, and um, I'll be linking to his website as well as to the books from batgap.com, um, and there you can see all of the other interviews that uh, have been done so far, and you can also um, sign up to be notified whenever a new one is done. There's a tab there for this email notification. Um, there's also a discussion group there on BatGap that crops up around each interview, so feel free to participate in that if you wish, and uh, sometimes gets quite lively. 
Uh, there's also an audio podcast of this show. If you don't like to just sit in front of your computer and watch interviews, or you'd rather hike in the woods or something while you listen to them, um, so there, you'll see that link, and you can sign up, get it on your iPod. There's a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking if they feel um, able to do so. And uh, I think that's about it. So uh, thank you, Patrika. And um, thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.